Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 5, Astronaut Training. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to tell you the coolest things about NASA. So today we're talking about astronaut training with Randy Bresnik, known by his colleagues as Comrade. He's a U.S. astronaut here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Well, actually, he's in space right now. He just launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome and arrived at the International Space Station last week, July 28th, to start his long-duration spaceflight. But before he launched, I had a chance to chat with him, and we had a great discussion about what astronauts have to study, know, and endure to be successful in space. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Randy Bresnik. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. All right, well, thanks for coming, Randy. I know you had some back-to-back stuff going on today, so I appreciate you taking, actually, the time to sit down and talk with me for just a little bit. And so close to your launch, too. I know, like, this, it's it's going to be pretty busy up until the time that you uh, actually are in space. And maybe by the time this podcast actually gets launched, you will actually be there. So this will be um, kind of appropriate with how busy and how quickly things are moving. Um, so today, kind of wanted to talk about uh, astronaut training, you know, what you have to go through in order to prepare yourself to go to space. And there's there's just so much. It has to be so diverse. Not only do you have to be a jack of all trades, but you have to be sort of like a master of all of them. Um, I did want to start off with, though, first of all, I'm reading your name here. It's Randy Comrade Bresnik. What's the story behind Comrade? It's a call sign from the Marine Corps. I come from the fighter community where I was flying F-18s. And typically we've always uh, historically given call signs to people, you know, go back to World War II, Pappy Boyington. You know, these these are, you know, nicknames that people had. Uh, Indian Joe Bauer, you know, was a squadron commander back when uh, um, the squadron I was in, you know, was in World War II. (laughs) And so we have these call signs. And so you get one either for your name or for something you've done stupid. And so... (laughs) Uh, example that uh, you know makes it really easy for people to understand is there's a guy who's in tra- you know the training command he's out there doing carrier calls for the first time and when you're on the catapult getting ready to get launched off the bow of the ship um, those things accelerate you from zero to 150 knots in under two seconds and so you are going flying because this thing has so much mechanical power yeah well um, he kept his feet on the brakes <laughs> the brakes are not going to hold the aircraft carrier from launching him and so you know catapult launches the brakes bl- you know the brakes he was holding the tires blow and so he ended with the call sign bam bam <laughs> and so you know I, d- I didn't have anything that had stuck until i got to the uh, f-18 training squadron and mm-hmm. I went on my first flight with a marine instructor and he, he asked if i had call sign i said hey you know they give me this that that and he said no those all stink i'll think of something and so we go flying in the f-18 i had an you know, amazing time i was you know the plane i always wanted to fly it was just a phenomenal airplane and he come back in the debrief, and we're done. He goes, right, I have a call sign for you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> knowing that these things can stick. He goes, Bresnik, Bresnik, that sounds like Brezhnev. We're, we're going to call you Comrade, Comrade Brezhnev. <laughs> and that was it. And, I, you know, here I am uh, quite a few 
decades later and haven't done anything stupid to get a new one. <laughs> Brezhnev after the Soviet leader and Leonid Brezhnev. Le- okay, and yes. I guess everyone called each other comrade as like a yeah. The, during Soviet times, that was that was how everybody addressed themselves. Uh, how they, okay, I get the reference now. So yeah. just as a little bit of background, but uh, you're you're Navy and Marines, is that correct? I am a the the overall arching is naval aviator, which includes I the see. Navy and the Marine Corps aviators. We wear the same wings on our on our, on our we earn the same wings in flight school. And we wear the same wings on our. Uh, okay, so when you talk about launching off of carriers and, and the Marines, so that's... Right, that's part of our overall naval aviator training. So I was trained to launch off an aircraft carrier, launch off a T2, A4, and an F-18. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as a Marine, we deploy expedition, uh, expeditionarily. Um, <laughs> not even a word. <laughs> we'll make it a word. Or expedition-based, <laughs> where we will launch and establish forward bases okay. uh, and fly out of there instead of just flying just off the aircraft carrier. Okay, okay. Now, you're... You, you're going to be launching soon, or if depending on when this podcast is released, you're in space right now. Uh, but this is not your first rodeo, right? You've you've been in space before. You launched uh, in 2009 on STS-29 aboard Atlantis. How was that? Uh, STS-129 was 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 really neat. I had a fortune to have a really great crew. We had uh, two marine test pilots, we had two navy test pilots, and we had two smart guys. <laughs> uh, our smart guys, nice. you know, Leland Melvin. Here he is. You know, he'd be. You know, been drafted into the NFL, playing football, but you know had a, a you know career-ending injury. But he had finished his education, and so he went back, got his master's, became a NASA engineer, and then became an astronaut. Awesome. You know, and then because we had the two Marines, and he needed to you know raise the average IQ on the flight, and so we had Bobby <laughs> Satcher, who you know is MIT, you know PhD in chemical engineering, and that wasn't enough, so he went to Harvard and became a medical doctor as well, you know, an oncologist, and so he was there to you know. Uh, try and make us all look, look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and great guys, um, Butch Wilmore, myself, and Bobby were all you know first-time flyers. Mm-hmm. But the other three experienced crew you know, were phenomenal mentors and taught us how to do what we needed to do while we were in training. So when we were able to go to space, we you know were able to execute very well and you know and uh, you know be a, you know hit all the tasks we needed to during the mission and you know call it a success now compared so. to like international space station missions now i mean we're talking about six months ish yeah. on the space station this was relatively short right just yeah. uh, over 10 days yeah. aboard so um i mean you had really had to soak it all in for those 10 yeah. days and it and is it, you know we say the the shuttle flights were a sprint and the station flight is a marathon right you, know? you for a shuttle flight you train for every minute of that flight because it's all you once you launch you've got every minute of every day you know chock full of of events right and so you're able to practice and rehearse that mm-hmm. Where a space station, we don't have that luxury. You, I mean, you don't know what you're doing next week because something may break or something may change or the priorities may, you know, be adjusted. Mm-hmm. And so we do skills-based training so that if I can do this particular you know, task, well, then I can do 100 tasks like that. And this is and for the space station, For right? space station. Yeah, yeah. And so we do this, this skills-based training so I've got skills in all these different areas mm-hmm. and we'll see how that skill will be put to use in maybe 10 or 20, 30 different areas during those six months. But I don't sit there and rehearse what I'm doing daily. Right. So when you were on the shuttle, you did two EVAs, right? So you rehearsed those, and you we had did. you had a lot of experience with you know exactly what you were doing. This was in the Nutribuoyancy Laboratory. The Nutribuoyancy Lab, world's largest swimming pool, six right. million gallons of water. A lot of water. You had know, a whole space stations underneath it. We had they used to have the shuttle in there when we were flying shuttle. Right. And uh, I don't know why I'm talking with my hands, you know, because there's a podcast, but you know, <laughs> it's just a pilot thing. You look good uh, when you're doing it. I'll t- I, right. I can justify that. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, we rehearsed each EVA six to seven times. I mean, every wow. single time, exactly what we're doing, you know, very well. And here I am, you know, Monday, I'm going for uh, my last uh, NBL run here before the flight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've done a handful of runs of a bunch of different 
types of skills, mm-hmm. um, not knowing if I'll do any of those particular things I rehearsed or I'll be doing stuff I completely did not rehearse. But mm-hmm. I've got a wide enough skill base to be able to, you know, do anything that's, you know, comes, uh, you know, that we end up having to have uh, happen either planned or unplanned. Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of times that, you know, you go into the neutral buoyancy laboratory and it kind of becomes almost muscle memory. You kind of like, you kind of know where you're going. You know, the I guess, lay of the land a little that's bit. That's the whole point. Yeah. You know, that, that's with any of the training we do, space is such a unique environment physically because your body's feeling, you know, the weightlessness. Mm-hmm. Visually because you're seeing the whole earth go underneath you and especially when you're outside in that spacesuit, your own personal spacecraft, and especially when you're underneath and you're holding on to something and you look down and your whole life has told you, wow, there's nothing between me and the earth but my boots. And that's 200 miles. If I let go, I'm going to fall because your whole life has taught you that here on earth. Yeah. And it's a physical thing you have to overcome. And so to be able to have the muscle memory go, I just, I go to this spot. I put my tether here. I pull Mm -hmm. out this piece of equipment. You can just rely on that and get to the comfortability of the training. Mm -hmm. Then you're able to not have it be such an overwhelming or or physically, um, you know, stressful event. Ah, okay. Uh, Well, so one cool thing about your two EVAs is something happened in between there. Want to talk a little bit about that? Um, Sure. I uh, uh, left Earth with my wife uh, and son watching and Mm -hmm. uh, my daughter, who was nine months in the womb at the the time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the funny thing was is that the morning of that launch, we strap in, the weather weather was iffy, and... Really, it was getting to the point where a few minutes before launch, you know, up until, you know, 15 minutes before launch, our commander, who had the best view, was kind of going, yeah, it's not looking so good, guys. And so we started kind of getting prepared that, hey, we might actually scrub. And we're hearing the calls over the radio, and, and the guy who's the weather um, STA pilot said, hey, there's a hole that's coming over, you know, here, you know. And, and we came out of the nine-minute hold because there's a hole that was just aligning with the weather-wise would allow us to launch. And wow. we came out of the nine-minute hole. It's like, we're going. It's like, wow, that's great. <laughs> but, you know, at that point, I knew that, hey, I was going to be around for the birth of our daughter. Right. And so we launched. We get going on the mission. We get docked to the space station. We knock out our first spacewalk. I'm the IV or the guy being the uh, basically the director, you know, of the two guys out there on the EVA. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the plan was, you know, because it was she had to be induced, um, they were going to uh, have her deliver the next day before my first DVA. And so they induced my wife, and okay. um, Abigail didn't come out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she did not come. And so oh. we wake up the next morning, and I'm expecting to wake up the morning of my first DVA and find out that my wife gave birth. Well, she's still in labor. <sighs> That's not good. <laughs> And so, but, you know, the EVAs happen, and we practice it these six times, and the mission's got to go, so I had to, you know, compartmentalize and go, okay. And we had the thing. Once we start, you know, getting prepped for the EVA, that, you know, whatever happens, I don't find out about it until we actually come back in the door. So get suited up, do our, 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 our work, go out the door for my first EVA. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, think about it afterwards. You know, I was kind of expecting when I came back in, you know, that to hear that she would have been born. You yeah. know, and just think, wow, what are the odds that I'm out outside on a spacewalk the same time my wife's, you know, giving birth to our daughter. <sighs> and so we come back in, you know, get put on the rack, and they pull off our helmet. I'm like, oh, is she born? Nothing. Is she born? No. Still in labor. No. <laughs> so I'm feeling really bad for, for my wife. I yeah. mean, just that's, a, you know, something us men just really don't understand. And 
to have it go that long, I know it's just um, very painful, and, and unfortunately it was. But in the end, she got to you know be there and, and, and give birth to our daughter. And so um, the, the next, that night, go to sleep and uh, expecting to hear, you know, in the morning um, that our daughter was born. And I ended up having to get up to, to use the, the facilities that the middle of the night. And I saw it was a KU, uh, KU band pass, so I quick call down mm-hmm. and uh, get a hold of her sister on the cell phone. And she's like, we're still in labor. Still. Like, oh, my God. So I... Um, uh, yeah, they were pretty busy down there, so they just kind of put the, the phone down on the table next to the uh, d- in the delivery room, and mm-hmm. so I was able to hear the, the sounds of the delivery room, you know, until uh. the KU pass um, uh, went down, and mm-hmm. um, turns out she was born about 20 minutes after the KU pass ended. No, so, you just missed it. So when I got up uh, the next morning, uh, the, the morning wake-up song um, was the song Butterfly Kisses, that my wife had picked out is the song to play the morning our daughter's born. So, so you knew. That's that's you knew that's how song. I knew. But I hadn't heard from my wife yet. So they're playing the song. Does that mean it happened? So <sighs> a few minutes later, they patched my wife through and was able to able to talk to her. That and is so, amazing. Um, talk about. I mean, you use the word compartmentalized. That I can't even imagine. You're like yeah. you're th- you're so concerned about your wife, and you're like, but I have this this EVA to do, and the, the, I need to whole, focus. The whole you know our whole shuttle crew and our whole you know, STS-129 team, our whole space program got us to that point to do that EVA to, you know, do this construction stuff. Right. And yeah, there, there's not a, you know, failure's not an option. You know, you, you, got, you got to focus. And then yeah. certainly when you're outside in your own personal spacesuit or spacecraft, you know, in the most inhospitable, you know, location known to man because it's, you know, plus 250 degrees in the sun and minus 250 degrees in the shade, mm-hmm. there's, there's no you know, margin for error. And so you have to compartmentalize. And so that was, as a, as a pilot and a test pilot, that was the most, you know, the culmination of my career. I'm, I'm in space. Now I'm going on a spacewalk. This is unbelievable. And the view was just indescribably beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the very next day to have something surpass that was just, uh, you know, very fortunate, very blessed to, to be able to have experienced that. Wow. You know, I, I wish I could have been there for my wife and been there at the delivery. Um, but... You know, they were, that was not the plan for us, and so we were just, you know, given grace. We were able to do do our jobs in respective areas of the planet or off planet, and and you know, um, good news after that. And then mm-hmm. the next day, waiting the whole day, you know, waiting until I could finally see pictures right. and get a little video uh, sent to me. And then a few minutes after that, I was able to actually get on a, a two-way video conference with my wife and and oh. see her and hear her little voice, and uh, that was you know pretty special, but. Literally, my commander was at the the node two, you know, waiting till I finished, kind of tapping his watch because as soon as I hung up uh, from that video conference, I had to float down into the airlock and close the hatch. And Bobby Satcher and I had to depress for down to 10.2 psi for the overnight campout to get the nitrogen out of our bodies for the EVA the next day. Where now I'm the the EV one, I'm the lead for the spacewalk. Oh So wow. back to the compartmentalized to the last spacewalk of the flight. <laughs> Wow. All right. So, My daughter's born. That's cool. Okay. Now I got to go. I, yeah. I, that's just what so. you have to do. And then that was, I guess, yeah, overnight purging. I guess, they don't do that anymore, right? They just do We don't. The, we do it called in-suit light exercise. I see. Where we're able to uh, use less overall oxygen from the station mm-hmm. to be more efficient with the oxygen that we have up there. Ah, makes sense. Okay. 
Well, so now you're gearing up for a six-month journey. So um, tell us a little bit about sort of the, the training that has to go, you know, I guess a little bit. How is it different in general from shuttle training? But just what all do you have to do to prepare yourself? Like what kinds of training does an astronaut have to do to, to, do, to be up there for six months? Um, certainly there's a lot of, you know, station training because there's um, you're up there for so much and you've got to be able to do everything. You've got to be able to do execute the payloads and experiments. At the same time, you've got to be able to do the Earth's observation. You've got to be able to do the uh, the events to talk to people down here on the Earth and share the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of the being the uh, you know the janitor, you got to clean up the, the <laughs> vents and wipe down the handrails and make sure the station is in you know a clean situation. Yeah. We've got to be able to fix things that break. The toilet breaks. You're not calling the plumber. You know, you are you the plumber. Are the plumber. <laughs> you, know, you are the scientist. You are the plumber. You are the fix-it repairman. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the training is, is, is like we talked about with the skills-based stuff, is how do I go ahead and, you know, fix this particular type of thing? How do I work this type of fitting, which is on 100 different pieces of equipment, mm-hmm. but I know how to work that fitting, you know? I see. Um, important stuff like our regenerative ECLIS systems, you know, the environmental control and life support, the oxygen generator, these carbon dioxide scrubber, those types of things are really important to to station. And, you know, so we've got to learn, you know, in depth how to fix those if they break. Right. You know, that's the stuff that really, we're proving, ISIS is the proving ground for exploration because when we launch to Mars, we can't have spares sent up. We can't just, if there's a problem, just deorbit and come back to Earth, you know, in a couple hours. Mm-hmm. We got to have it all there. It's all got to work and mm-hmm. it's got to keep working for years at a time to be able to get there, do our mission, and then come back. Yeah. And so we're, we're proving that those technologies now. That's amazing. Um, and with, you know, the current time where we don't have the shuttle and we don't have our, you know, our Starliner or our Dragon crewed vehicles yet, our only way to space is through our Russian partners. That's right. And so, so is. 60% of the time of my last you know, year and a half has been in Russia, training oh. to launch, um, you know, rendezvous, dock, and then land uh, on the Soyuz. So what's your role on the, on the Soyuz? Then? On the Soyuz, I'm in the left seat, or they call the flight engineer. Okay. And so the, uh, my Russian crewmate, Sergei Ruzansky, is in the center seat. He's the commander of the Soyuz. And so between the two of us, we work and run all the systems uh, within the Soyuz. And then our flight engineer number two, now, because we've changed crews a little bit here recently, right. uh, Paolo and Spoli from Italy. Mm-hmm. And so the three of us will be launching on uh, July 28th. So 60% of your time, I guess you said for the In, past year and, year and a half, half, has been over there. Wow, yeah. that's a, that must be a complicated system then, right? So. Um, it's complicated. There's also the um, um, Russian segment training that we get because that's you know, a good half a station. We typically don't work down, the, down there daily, mm-hmm. but you know, especially as being, just, I'll be the commander of the ISS for Expedition 53, I kind of need to know what's going on in the whole station. So yeah. we get you know, training so that I, you know, I can be helpful to those guys, know what's going on, and then if necessary, you know, make decisions based on the, the the health of the entire you know, space station. That's all. So what um, what what kind of, you know you're there for so long? What are you going over? Are you going over mostly how to work the thing, or you know if this goes wrong, this is what like emergency situation. <clears throat> mostly that, and that's the oh, same thing because it's a dynamic flying vehicle. That's the yep. that's the dangerous part of the mission. And mm-hmm. then same thing with shuttle. We did so many sims just for ascent, entry, and landing, mm-hmm. and fortunately. You know, the majority of that training that we got, we never had to use. But if 
you had to use it, you know, your life depended on it, you know, and yeah. it was very time critical. So that's why a constant rehearsal over those things. Right. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, you're in Russia and doing this stuff in Russian. That, there's a little <laughs> bit extra, you know, margin that you have to add for that because it's, it's not one of the easier languages. I hear that's one of the more difficult parts of training is Russian language. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're right. It's, it's, it's very difficult. I'm starting training here in the next couple of weeks and I'm, I'm nervous. I'm very nervous. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, being an astronaut, though, it's not just, you know, flying the vehicles and fixing stuff, you know. You have to be in tip-top shape, right? There's a, there's a physical element to it. Every astronaut is just in super good Do you guys have, like, um, do you have physical requirements? Like, so you have to work out this much time or, um, you know, even, even medical. Do you have to learn how to, um, in case of an emergency, you know, patch someone up or anything like that? All right. So. Sounds like two questions there. I guess it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Certainly, the uh, the workout point. You know, um, the better your the better shape your body is in, the better it will be able to um, respond and adapt to zero gravity, and mm -hmm. then maintain itself when it doesn't have gravity to help keep your bones strong and your muscles strong and all that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's certainly one of the bigger concerns about leaving. You know, our Van Allen radiation belt, which protects us here. You know, in low Earth orbit and on the planet and going to far off destinations. How do we protect the physical body of the crew so that when they get to somewhere, they can do the exploration that we want to do? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of, obviously the, the you know, protected from radiation, there's protected from zero gravity, right. um, and we do have a lot of countermeasures now, and that's why space station and being up there for six months gives us really good insight mm -hmm. is to do, since you don't get the, uh, you know, the sun, oh, can we up your vitamin D? Can we get the certain diet? Can we get the proper exercise with you know aerobic and anaerobic exercise uh. to keep the body from you know deteriorating in zero G, uh, which it would normally do. You know they say that being up there is like you know a person having osteoporosis, and so we you can't just do nothing. Uh, otherwise, you come back in, in bad shape, having lost a lot of um, a bone. So you um, train how to use the, I guess, workout equipment. Right, there, the workout right? equipment, which is you know amazing. The advanced resistive exercise device is a phenomenal piece of equipment that can, does all kinds of different stuff. Mm -hmm. And people are coming back, you know, in better shape, you know, than than, than they leave sometimes. Part of it's the fact that we have to dedicate a couple hours every day to working out. Um, your body, right. you know, here on Earth, standing up and sitting down out of a chair, getting out of bed, getting in your car, walking to the, the you know, to work. That those little things that you do, even if you're not quote exercising like we would think, your still body's moving. In mm -hmm. space, you're floating around. You're not doing anything difficult all day long. So that's the only exercise you really get. Uh, so, yeah, because otherwise there would be that kind of natural deterioration. Yeah. Uh, we had an episode beforehand where we talked with John Charles, where if you're, you know, if your body doesn't need the your bones and muscles because yeah. it's not using it as much, then your body says, all right, we don't need put any energy towards hey, that exactly yeah and so, so and then the medical question right yeah i mean there's no doctors there so we trained you know kind of like you have you know telemedicine and things like that that are really technology is really allowing us to do well now these days mm -hmm. we're the eyes and ears you know for the doctor we're we're like space emts we can do the the initial triage and we train for somebody who's not breathing or somebody's had you know they don't have a heartbeat we right. can take care of all that stuff on orbit stabilize them mm -hmm. and then you know get the docs involved and then figure out how to do follow-on treatment or if necessary for a medical emergency evacuation on the space station. And you guys are running through these procedures um, 
kind of repetitively, I would mm-hmm. assume, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to build the muscle memory. Yeah, you know, and unfortunately, we got great procedures and great training that mm-hmm. allows it to be where okay, we can get the person to here by stuff that we've you know learned and memorized, and then we open up the procedure and go, okay, here's where we're at, and then we can sync up with the ground and go, here's what's next. Hey, doc, you got any other idea? Here's a video camera picture of the patient. Here's what we're seeing. Okay, we all agree. Let's you know, <laughs> just give them this particular you know uh, medicine or something like that that they need. So it's really. Yeah. A group effort. <laughs> I'm imagining. Uh, I, I was a lifeguard in, in way back in high school, and um, I, I'm imagining just kind of like that, but just a million times more complicated. Because yeah. it's the same thing, right? You're sitting and watching a pool, but every once in a while something goes wrong, and you got to know what to do. Yeah. So you're um, you have kind of a unique ex- set of experiences. Not only are you an astronaut, but you are an aquanaut and a cavanaut. I want to start with the cave and What is a cave and What did you do in a cave? I guess you lived in a cave, right? We did. Uh, the European Space Agency back in 2011 started um, this uh, expeditionary and extreme environment training called Caves. Okay. Um, and they they originally you know, planted as kind of a cooperative behavior thing, kind of more of a how do you get along with people and you know put the astronauts all together and put them in little stressful situations and see how they evolve and how they get you know, the personality skills and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it uh, was in the caves, the vast, vast underground cave systems in Sardinia, Italy, um, which is an island off the uh, the west coast of, of the main body of Italy. Okay. And so you start out, you know, just like with any training, with basic caving stuff and rappelling and climbing. And then you went to spend a day where you're in these really narrow caves where it's really whining about getting lost and navigation and being able to go through squeezes and navigating through tiny, you know, areas of the cave to overcome any you know, claustrophobia or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the day we do the whole space photography, or I'm sorry, cave photography, and how to map out and um, uh, allow us to make maps from the data we collect in the caves from laser range fires, how big's the room, what shape is it, how was the inclination. Um, put that all together to the final exercise, which is a week uh, underground. And mm-hmm. you, know, you, you head in uh, a kilometer and a half from the opening of the cave, and that's Ooh. where the base camp was. <laughs> and when this, you know, tens of kilometers long cave and there was a point where the maps ended and our job was to go out every day and map out new parts of the cave so we decided what whole dark spot to go into and check out and see if that was a dead end or see if that was somewhere to go and go back and further and further into the cave and go through it you know it's amazing going through a tiny area um kind of like squeezing through a toilet seat almost <laughs> you know and opening up to a cathedral sized room underground you're going Holy, I'm underground. Whoa. Look at this huge area. There were no trails, no lights, no guardrails. Right, because you're I mean, mapping it. You're, 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 you're discovering You're mapping it. You figure very <laughs> few humans have ever seen this. Right, right. And it's unlike anything you've ever seen on the earth or seen pictures of. I mean, it's just, wow. and, and so you got this real feeling for, for exploring. You go, okay, we were, I mean, we were excited. Every, hey, we, we know we can go this way or that way. Let's go that way today, and let's go see what's over there. That's um, so cool. And so it was really, really an enjoyable thing to do with these other you know people these other astronauts who are just as excited about this exploring too and really applicable to what we do in space mm-hmm. because what they uh, found from doing this, this this caves exercise is that there's a lot more space applications than they thought because in space you don't know what time it is because every 45 minutes you get a sunrise and then a sunset and that goes happen 16 times a day right well, in a cave, it's dark all the time, so you never know what time it is. So you could just be <laughs> marching along, doing stuff, and realize, oh, my, why do I feel tired? Oh, I've been up for 20 hours, you know? <laughs> you know, I forgot to eat, you know, because I didn't have, oh, yeah, it's lunchtime, you know? Yeah, you kind of um, have to just, like, make up almost yeah. a biological clock because you and don't have the sun. Like I said, there's no 
there's no guardrails. There's no um, you know paths. Yeah. There's there is a definitely apparent fear of death. You could be doing stuff where you're you know attached onto a you know a a guideline, and it could be 200 feet. You know, if you take a slip and you're not attached, you're 200 feet. I mean, it's Whoa. very much like being in space, where if you're on the spacewalk and something goes wrong and you're not tethered properly, you know, it's it's a it's a bad day. Wow. So. Did you? Did, I mean, once you got set up and I guess on base camp, did you light up everything so you can see a little bit, or was it pretty much? Was you, it? You had your helmet light. That was it. That was it. The that entire it. time. And you got used to it, and that was that was pretty neat. <laughs> and so that was made photography really interesting mm -hmm. because what you would do is you'd you know put the thing on manual, you'd open the shutter. And then you'd take a flash and you'd, you know, hit it a couple of different times and just point it at different areas of the cave, trying to not point it at the camera, mm. but kind of shield it with your body. So you could light up different stuff. So it's kind of like painting by the numbers. You're just painting with, with lights, with the flash or even flashlights. You could, you know, actually do, um, you know, squeals and write words, you know, with the <laughs> flashlight of what it was showing on places. Wow. And so you then close the shutter and see what showed up on the screen to don't see what you got. Because you couldn't tell because it was just flash and lights moving all around during the picture. And then you look to see what, what it all, you know, amalgamated made it to at the end that's really amazing. neat wow i guess what was it like seeing the sun for the first time after after being there for so long it was really bright and, and, <laughs> and it was up it was in the cave with thomas pesquet and tim peak and when we came out thomas was like the sky is a different blue they changed the blue it was just so vibrant <laughs> and the, the other thing that was so amazing was that you, you know the sights and sounds and smells in the cave are all very you know very much the same and mm. we came out after that week and literally, you could like smell every bush and the dirt and the grass. I mean, it's just Whoa. just shocking. It's just so sensory overload with your smell. Yeah, because I guess your body adapted to not to ha not having it. Yeah, and so very much like you know, you hear people come back from space station right. where you don't have the fresh smells or or you know the 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 breeze you know from the wind that, that modulates. You have the constant breeze of the air ducts and the, mm -hmm. the ventilation system, um, and certainly the smells are get pretty standard up there. Um, <laughs> And you come back and you just, you know, feeling the grass under your toes and, you know, yeah. this and that. I mean, we're supposed to be landing in December. I'm like, smell? I'm sure snow will have a smell when I come back. Going, That's <laughs> fresh snow. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have, we have like one more minute, but I did want to ask, I wouldn't want to follow up about the Aquanaut experience, what it was like to live underwater. That was amazing, too, because I've been scuba diving for, for years, mm -hmm. and I just loved how... It, how unique that environment is and the wildlife underneath there and the aquarius habitat right now is the only thing on the planet where people can go live underwater wow. there's actually been less aquanauts people that have spent more than 24 hours underwater than there have been astronauts oh and so that's pretty you know interesting interesting fact yeah and the interesting thing about that is again like the caves there's an apparent fear of death i mean you've got you're you know, you know 40 feet underwater but once you're saturated, you, that's not safety. Something goes wrong with your equipment. You can't just do an emergency ascent. You're the, going to the surface will kill you. Yeah. You have to get back inside, and we have to, you know, use the uh, the habitat as a hyperbaric chamber. Wow. And so you are you got to figure out what's going on. And so buddy checks, checking your gear, just like we do on spacewalk, very important. Knowing where your buddy is and what he's doing in case you have a problem, you can go over somewhere and buddy breathe. Things like that that you know um, have to be in your mind the whole time you're doing uh, you know a simulated spacewalk on the on the uh, underground, and then be able to you know live underwater and see the cycles of the fish and what fish were active at daylight, what fish were you're active at nighttime, you know, mm -hmm. and just seeing them seeing that whole thing unfold around you every day um, just made it a really amazing experience. And you're you're in this habitat that's the size of like a school bus and there's six of you living and working for a week and you got to figure out how to 
get over, you know, yeah, any uh, um, individual issues you might have and be able to be an effective member of the team. And, and between those different extreme environments, the hope is, is that when someone finally gets a chance to go to space, that it's just one of many, you know, extreme environment things that they can add to their repertoire. And it's not such a huge overall assault on their senses and, and their physical being because they've been in extreme places before. This is just one more rather than the first one they see. Yeah, it sounds like you're taking little things from, from each experience, you know, for the cavernaut you're taking, you know, adjusting your biological clock. From aquanaut you're taking, you know, the camaraderie and buddy checks, making sure everyone's okay. And just uh, obviously there's got to be more, but just that whole round experience yeah. makes you like truly an, a knot. I don't know, an all knot? I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm making up words here. Anyway, <laughs> well, comrade, thank you for coming on the show. I know you're a very busy man, so uh, just best of luck to your mission. Uh, maybe by the time this is up here, you'll already be up there. So again, best of luck to you. Uh, for the listeners, if you want to stay tuned till after a little music here, uh, we'll tell you how you can follow Comrade on his journey. He's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if I'm correct, right? Correct. All right, so we'll tell you about that after the show. So thanks again, Comrade. My pleasure, and good luck with the podcast. Thanks. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with astronaut Randy Comrade Bresnik, and he is very active on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, he's NASA astronaut Randy Comrade Bresnik, on Twitter, at Astro Comrade, and on Instagram, also at Astro Comrade. And you can follow him on any one of those accounts. You can actually just search and find, just search Randy Bresnik and he'll probably pop up. He's verified on all the other accounts. And he shares pictures of his experience on board and some images of the Earth, so please follow along. Uh, if you want to see the whole journey of the International Space Station, that's where he is right now, uh, that's also on all of those platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, it's the International Space Station page. On uh, Twitter, at space underscore station. And on Instagram, is at ISS. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms, and you can submit an idea to the to the podcast or maybe uh, ask a question, and we'll make sure to address it in one of the later podcasts. Uh, this podcast was recorded on May 4th, so may the 4th be with you. It's probably way too late for that, but that's okay. We're recording it on May 4th. I'm really in the mood. Thanks to John Stoll, Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, and John Streeter for helping out with this episode, and thanks again to Mr. Randy Bresnik for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.